All righty, if you guys will go ahead and be seated. Good morning, I guess afternoon, crazy. Okay, we are after 12. Um, My name is Brooklyn. I'm here on staff at Hope Church NYC. Um, If we haven't met yet, it's nice to be here with you. Normally I'm over at Hope Westside on Sunday, so it's kind of fun to be back at Midtown. Um, Had been a part of this church for a little while before moving over to Westside. Um, And I work with our college and young adult ministry, and I also work with Daisy in our youth. Um, which are great titles, good things to note. But my favorite title of all of the titles that I uh, hold is that of aunt. Anyone else understands that, like aunt life? Um, So on the screen behind me are pictures of my two very adorable nieces. As you can tell, they are fully decked out in their Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl victory attire. Go Chiefs. Um, but uh, these, these two girlies here, Nora, she'll be six next month, and Ruby is six months old, which is crazy how quickly time flies with little babies. Um, and the best part about being an aunt is it gives me uh, an excuse to watch animated movies on repeat, right? Um, I do that anyway, but people judge that, but not when I'm with them, you know? Uh, So my favorite phase that Nora went through when she was a little younger was the Frozen phase. Yes? Everyone has seen Frozen or most? Raise your hand. Who's seen it? Who's seen the second one? Okay, the second one might be better. I don't know. Um, But if you aren't familiar with these movies and these stories, I am going to talk a little about them. And if it spoils something for you, like, that's on you at this point. Uh, You should have already seen them. So, the first movie in Frozen is about Elsa and her powers, and she goes through this journey of learning what that means, and she's in isolation, she comes into community, it's beautiful, sisters, all the things, right? The second movie, though, is really where I think things get interesting. It starts with this really beautiful um, kind of sisterhood. They're really close. Everyone is happy. It's summer, and it's moving into winter. Um, Good songs at the beginning about things never changing. And then Elsa starts hearing this, like, voice calling out to her. And so she and the crew get together. They go on an adventure to the enchanted forest. But before they go in... Um, the best friend and best snowman, Olaf, has this really great quote. Olaf says, Did you know that an enchanted forest is a place for transformation? I have no idea what that means, but I can't wait to see what it's going to do to each one of us. So we're in our second week here in our Lent series called Along the Way, where we're encountering different stories in the Bible about where God meets people along the journey in transformational ways. I don't know what this enchanted forest looks like for you and this season, um, but I believe that God wants to meet us in really new and powerful ways this Lent. I don't know what forest and transformation is coming, but I can't wait to see what it does for each one of us. So before we jump into the text, I just want to pray uh, together. Jesus, thank you for meeting us along the way. Thank you for teaching us through your word and for giving us new insights into who you are and how you see us. Would you open our ears and our hearts to hear from you um, and to experience something new about you today? In Jesus' name, amen. So as we heard this text being read, I can't help but go, wow, this text is kind of intense. Genesis 16 is not an easy 
passage to read. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. There's a lot of layers. There's a lot of different ways that we could take this. There's a lot of things culturally that we can note and we will. But one thing that I want us to just note from the top here is that this passage is to be interpreted as descriptive, not prescriptive. So when we're reading this story, it's a story that happened to people in a context at a time that God spoke to at a context and a culture and a time. And some of the things that we read are not to be prescriptive to us in the same way. So we'll get into that a little bit more, but I do just want to start there um, because it is a little heavy as we talk about Hagar and the mistreatment and some of the different things that happened to her in her story. So with all of that said, we're going to jump in. Verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So a little character study. Um, Sarai and Abram are going to become Sarah and Abraham, which are two very influential, pretty common names throughout the Old Testament. Through Abraham, the nation of Israel is born, and, and all sorts of other things come through, through these promises that God has made to Abraham. Um, their story actually starts in chapter 12. So we're in 16. In chapter 12, we actually meet... Um, Abram and God is having this conversation with him where he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. So that's chapter 12. Then in chapter 15, right after or right before this text, um, God and Abraham are having a conversation because Abram still doesn't have kids. He's like, I don't really know what you're talking about. Um, this great nation, like uh, the closest relative that's going to inherit all of my stuff is a cousin over here, like not my kid, right? And we're old. We're getting old. My wife can't really have kids anymore. And so Abram says all of this to God. And then the word of the Lord came to him and says, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So then in the beginning here of chapter 16, years have passed. We've now like done that. Abram's heard from God. He's like, okay. And now Sarai is still not pregnant. It's been more time, more waiting, and still no pregnancy. So Sarai starts to get strategic. We're introduced to Hagar. Who is Hagar? Well, Hagar has a few like things going for her, right? Uh, the first thing going for her is that she's an Egyptian outsider, The second thing she has going for her is that she's a slave. And the final thing she's got is that she's a woman in a patriarchal society. Obviously, if you couldn't tell, like, that's not great things. These are like the trifecta of terrible, terrible things that could be true of you in this time. And so she is introduced at the beginning, and we automatically know she is like the bottom. Sarai and Abram are the people in power, and Hagar is not. Verse 2, Sarai says to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So at this time, culturally, women's worth and value in society came in their ability to have children. Um, And specifically for them to have boys. That was what women kind of were there for. Um, So here is Sarai, unable to conceive after this promise that God has given to them. Um, And I don't want us to move past that too quickly. The pain, the feelings of just like worthlessness that Sarai must be feeling at the very beginning of this text. 
had to have been heavy. And we're going to see some of these ways that that comes out sideways at other people. Um, but I, we need to acknowledge that as we read this text together. And she says, the Lord has kept me from having children. So she contributes this to God. And so she decides to start getting a little culturally, like normatively strategic. Um, And so she's like, Hagar can be the one that has the kid. And so this would have been the equivalent of like surrogacy um, because Hagar was a legal extension of Sarai. So any children that she would have born in this society would have had the legal rights of Sarai and Abram, not of Hagar. Uh, Obviously, this is different from our cultural understanding of surrogacy today where women opt in to surrogacy. Hagar had no choice. This was what was decided for her, right? And so we keep going through where Abram agrees to this. After they'd been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took the Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Again, remember women's identity is in this ability to have children. So now the slave is pregnant. She has something that is valuable that her owner doesn't even have. So I would imagine that that would rise up in her some sort of like, okay, maybe I do have more value than you've said this whole time. I have something you want. And I would imagine that that house was not super pleasant all of the time because of that. Again, Sarai is in a pain spot. This is something that she has wanted so desperately for so long. And now this lady has it. And it's still kind of hers, but it's different, right? So the tensions had to have been high. We know they are because we keep reading that Sarai says to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. This strategy that Sarai has worked up, that she hoped would fulfill in her and in her family this promise from God, turns out to be incredibly frustrating and incredibly painful and incredibly isolating. And so she's angry and likely hurting, and so she starts lashing out. Lashing out so much to the point that Hagar feels her only choice is to leave. These are the people of God, right? Abraham and Sarah are the mother and father of the coming nations, and their story doesn't always include these picture-perfect moments that we think maybe they should because they're these like key figures of our faith. In fact, just a few chapters before this, we saw them flee into Egypt, and uh, Abraham tells Sarah, hey, we're going to pretend we're not married, tell them you're my sister instead, and uh, hopefully we don't get killed. So what does Pharaoh do? He takes Sarah to be his wife, which is so weird and so messed up. There's so many layers in that story. And God has to rescue them out of Egypt. And now here they are in a position because of Egypt with a woman from Egypt. And everything is spiraling differently. And it all comes out at Hagar, which is so unfair and so unfortunate. Hagar has been in this foreign land with these foreign people being treated terribly because of this mistreatment. And now she's done everything she's supposed to do. She listened to them. She did what they told her to do. She's gone through with things, no choice of her own. 
and now she's on the run. Hagar finds herself in this desert wilderness, not by her own actions and choices, but because of the harsh reality of the mistreatment she's experienced from others, the pain, the despair, that isolation. Perhaps you feel like Hagar at this point in the story. She's alone. She's in the middle of the desert, just looking for a way out of suffering, of despair, of mistreatment. A few years ago, pandemic, right? I can't believe we're coming at the four-year anniversary of a lockdown. Doesn't seem real sometimes. And uh, as most probably experienced, life turned upside down in weird ways. And I remember getting through the lockdown, getting into another job, starting to find new rhythms again. Um, And I found myself just entering a pretty tough, uh, dark, scary wilderness uh, experience of my own confused by some of the pain that I had experienced from church, from other people. Um, I was absolutely exhausted. My family just had family emergency after family emergency for months on end. It felt like every time we almost got back up, something else came and just wrecked the world again. Um, I felt really isolated and overwhelmed by everything. Um, For months, it just felt like I was aimlessly wandering around, trying to figure out what I even believed about things, what I thought to be true, what was going on, just trying to make sense of my experiences. Um, And I remember being surrounded by people in a city like New York. There are people everywhere. And I didn't think my coworkers would understand, because how could they? And then I didn't think the Christians I knew in my life would understand, because how would they? And so I just felt myself kind of getting trapped into further and further isolation and pain. And it really felt for a long time like God had abandoned me there. Why me? What did I do to deserve this pain? Does anybody see me? And maybe you've experienced something similar or you're finding yourself kind of there today, uh, feeling abandoned, isolated, or unseen. Uh, Maybe you yourself are experiencing infertility and people keep getting pregnant around you and you don't know how to celebrate with them anymore because it feels like God has forgotten you. Or maybe you're single, and there are a lot of really happily dating, engaged, married people around you, and you're trying. It's not like you're not getting out there and dating, but for whatever reason, this unmet desire is still sitting unmet in you, and you feel alone, isolated, perhaps jaded. Does God even see you in that? Maybe you have just ended a relationship of some kind, a friendship, a romantic relationship, and someone says to you, there's nothing you can do, I've decided this is over. And you are are finding yourself surrounded by brokenness, trying to pick up the pieces of something, but nobody is around to help you. God, why have you abandoned me? Maybe you're new in the city, And you don't know where you belong yet. And it's incredibly isolating to try to figure it out. And you don't even know what you're doing here anymore. Um, You're alone. Maybe you feel confused about where you should be. Does anyone even see me? Now, Hagar's story doesn't end here. And neither does ours. The truth is that God sees us 
and he transforms our suffering into hope. We keep reading in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. So, angel of the Lord, what is this? Who is this? Many theologians actually uh, say that this is like the pre-incarnate Jesus, uh, that this is somehow Jesus making himself known before he comes to earth. Um, So, kind of read that through that lens, is that God has made himself present with Hagar in some way. And then the angel of the Lord found Hagar in order to be found Someone has to go looking. So this means that God has gone out to look for her, and he finds her there at a spring in the desert. And then he says, Hagar, slave of Sarai. Notice that the first thing that God calls her is her name and not her status. He is calling her first as Hagar, and then the clarifiers and the other things that we know to be true of her. He's bringing value back to her in the middle of this wilderness experience. The angel of the Lord continues, where have you come from and where are you going? So God meets her in this pain and then asks her two questions. Now, why would God ask questions? Not because he doesn't know the answer. I think he definitely knows what's going on here. Um, But instead, I think that God is actually creating this space with Hagar to have a conversation with her. He is inviting her into communion with him. Uh, And she does answer one of the questions. She answers that first one. She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Notice that that's the only question she answers. She knows what has happened. She can say, this is where I've come from. But my guess is she doesn't actually know where she's going. That she just knew she needed out. but she didn't quite give a ton of thought into how and where and what was next. And this is what I love about the angel of the Lord in this passage. Um, He actually helps her here. He gives her an answer to that second question uh, in response to her. He says, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Doesn't that promise sound a little bit familiar? Kind of like the one that God had given Abram before. Remember what I said earlier, though, about descriptive versus prescriptive. I think it's really important for us to uh, not hear what I'm not saying. Um, I'm not saying that God is telling everyone to go back to abusive, destructive, damaging environments and submit. That's not what this passage is saying at all. Uh, God was doing something very specific in the story of Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac and Sarah and Abram that is going to unfold throughout the rest of scripture. That is for that specific context. What I believe God is saying through this passage that we can take today is that he actually sends her back, but she doesn't go back the same. She doesn't leave the wilderness to just go back and do what she'd been doing. God actually gives her a new hope and a new promise while she goes back into something that's hard. She doesn't have to go back thinking that she's this lowly woman who has no value and no worth. Instead, God is sending her back saying, your descendants will be numerous too. And he continues. The promise gets even cooler. He says in verse 11, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. Remember, sons matter. That was a really 
culturally significant type of child to have because men had a little more value. They were the heirs, et cetera. Um, and so this is pre-sonogram technology. So she wasn't going to know what she was going to have until the baby was born. But God is saying, you have a son and you're going to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. So you're going to have a son and his name is going to remind you that I hear you, that I have heard your misery. It keeps going to say he will be a wild donkey of a man. Kind of a funny thing to describe a guy to be. Um, wouldn't recommend it probably. But um, donkeys back in this, like again, cultural time would have been um, like service animals. They were there to do labor, to transport, etc. And so what God is promising Hagar, the slave, is that her son will be free. Imagine hearing those words as a slave woman in this context. Your son, his name means I hear you, and he's not going to be enslaved. In fact, it keeps talking about kind of his uh, relationship to others. His hands will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. That's loaded. We could get into that a ton We're not going to today, but just know that there's a history that unfolds through the Old Testament um, and throughout history in general um, with this promise that is fulfilled through Ishmael. And Hagar's response to the God who is sending her back with new promise, with new hope, is to actually give God a name. Now, giving someone a name, I don't know if anyone has nicknames in here, um, but I know for me, nicknames are like pretty personal. It means that someone knows me enough and um, has like come up with something that they're going to call me, something that is fun with us, or again, just the shows an intimacy or a knowledge of, of us, of me. And so for Hagar to do this, signi- really significant naming, uh, shows that this encounter with God has changed her that there's something about what has happened here that she's not going to forget, right? And she calls him in verse 13, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. The God who sees her in the wilderness, who gives her new hope, who transforms suffering to a new promise and a new future. Despair transformed to hope. And Hagar goes back. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Uh, So we're going to guess a little. Um, You know, she's got to now travel back however many miles she's traveled to get back to being with Abram and Sarai. And when she comes back, I imagine she's met with some questions, right? Where'd you go? Where, why are you back? What happened to you, right? I'm sure that there were just normal conversation that they would have been having. And Hagar is so different by this experience that she definitely would have wanted to tell. And we know that she had to have told Abram all that had happened because the chapter ends with Abram naming their son Ishmael. How else was he going to know to name the kid Ishmael? That was a message from God to Hagar that then she would have given to Abram and he listened. So the God who sees saw her and then God uses Hagar to communicate something to Abram as well. You see, when people meet God and have their despair transformed into hope, they can't keep quiet about it. 
There's another story in the Bible that I really love that I think parallels this one really nicely. Um, It includes Jesus in the flesh, a watering hole, and another outsider woman. Uh, In John chapter 4, if you have your Bible and want to go there, we'll be there for a second. Um, We find Jesus as he's leaving um, this region in Judea. He's going back to the region of Galilee. And we start in verse 4 where it says, Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. All right, Jewish people avoided Samaria, but here we see that Jesus had to go through there. And I love what that implies, that God had to do something there at that time, and Jesus knew that he just needed to go with it. And so Jesus goes, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So Jesus is now sitting at a well alone with a woman, which is like super controversial in this time. People totally would have been talking if they had seen. And it's a Samaritan woman, so like even worse than just like regular Jewish women. And so this culturally is a little bit crazy because she's an outsider and what's Jesus doing talking to her alone? They go back and forth. They have a nice little conversation. And we're going to pick up in verse 15 where the woman says to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Yikes. (laughs) Like this woman is like, I don't have one. And he's like, no, but let me tell you everything about your life. And this woman, I imagine, would have just been like, oh, that, yes, uh, what? Who is this guy, right? And so they, again, keep having this conversation of, are you the Messiah? Are you the guy that's been promised? What's happening here? And then the disciples return and are surprised to see him talking to a woman. But no one asks any questions. They just stay quiet. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come, see a man who saw me. She goes to this village and tells everyone, you guys, he knows everything I've done wrong. Kind of like all of you know all the things I've done wrong. You got to meet him. There's something that happens in her interaction with Jesus that turns this shame into freedom that she feels that she needs to go and invite everyone else to meet this guy. Then in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed for two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know This man really is the savior of the world. When this kind of transformation happens in us, 
we can't help but share it with others. There's something that changes in our suffering and in our despair and the ways that we view who we are, that when Jesus sees us, everything changes. We have hope, we have freedom, and we want others to experience the same God that saw me sees you. There's enthusiasm, there's energy, there's something new that happens when Jesus interacts with these women in these ways. From the very beginning of scripture, all the way in Genesis, through all the way to the end, God is telling a story of people who are seen by him, not abandoned, not forsaken. And he's giving us a new way forward through Jesus. I think some of us today need to hear that God sees you. I think it's easy sometimes, uh, if you've grown up in church maybe, to say, yeah, God sees people. Yeah, yeah, God sees them. But no, this message is for you. God sees you. And he wants to transform your suffering into hope and a future and this transformation is not just for you and for me alone individually. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be imitators of Christ, to replicate how Jesus interacted with people in the world in the best ways that we can, reflecting his goodness to those around us. That includes seeing people who feel unseen, marginalized, desperate, hopeless, the God of the universe is a God who sees. And that's really good news. Our city needs to know and needs to experience the God who sees. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends are desperate for something. I think we all are. And God sees us in the middle of those pain points in our story. Injustice, despair, isolation, these are not the end of the story in Jesus' name. The hope and the promise of restoration, of redemption, of renewal, of everything, of all things, our story, the world, is because of the ultimate death and resurrection of Jesus. It's his life lived, his life poured out, and the hope that we have that he is making all things new and he will make all things new. May we be a people that's marked by our openness to truly seeing people around us and to live seen. I think you have to be seen in order to live seen. And so what does that look like for you? How might God be asking and inviting you into a deeper awareness of his presence in the middle of your suffering, in the middle of whatever it is you're going through? And how might he be inviting you to live that out to the people around you? Have the worship team come up as we um, just pray and reflect. And I'll also invite everyone, if you'll stand with me. Jesus, Thank you that you are the God who sees. God, I just 
pray that as we spend the next few minutes in prayer and reflection, as we sing, that you would draw near to us. Lord, that you would make your presence known for those who are suffering. Jesus, would you see them? Would you remind them that you are with them? and that you want to transform that suffering into hope. Holy Spirit, come speak to us as we reflect and as we sing. In Jesus' name.